A spiritually dead person does not have the ability to act contrary to his nature, and he does not have the ability to enter God's kingdom. Number three, a spiritually dead person does not have the ability to do anything spiritually good. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Do you realize that in your own power you are helpless? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part two of his current series, This Is Your Life. Last time, Tom began to look at the biblical truth that no human being by nature has the ability or power to approach Jesus for salvation unless God intervenes and initiates. Today, we will consider how on your own, you are helpless to act contrary to your sinful nature. You cannot enter God's kingdom. You cannot embrace the truth. You cannot obey God. You cannot please God. And you cannot come to Christ for salvation. So what can you do in your spiritual journey? Let's join Tom Pennington to find out here on The Word Unleashed. In Luke 15, Jesus tells these three parables. You remember uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons, one who leaves and one who stays at home, but both lost. And notice what, how he describes how the, the words he puts in the mouth of the Father, representing God here, receiving a sinner. Notice how the father speaks of the son, the prodigal, who's returned home. Verse 24, he says, I want you to throw a party for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He wasn't physically dead. He was partying in the far country and then reduced to the worst of situations. But from the mindset and perspective of the father, he had died And he needed life again, and he'd been brought to life by his repentance. You see it again down in verse 32. We had to celebrate, he tells the older brother, and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. Even when you get out of the narrative portions and the parables of our Lord, you see this same picture used. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6. Here... Paul is talking about widows and the the right kind of widows. And then he talks for a moment in verse 6 about the sinful kind of widow. She who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. What a graphic picture of sin and its pervasiveness. In 1 John chapter 3, In verse 14, the Apostle John writes, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Perhaps the most chilling one of all is Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, as 
John writes to one of the seven churches there in Asia Minor, the church in Sardis, and he begins like this in Revelation 3.1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, this is Christ speaking, I know your deeds, speaking to the church in Sardis, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. The spiritually dead can even be in Christian churches that claim to worship Jesus Christ. What Paul is describing here as death, we were dead, is what theologians call total depravity. Total depravity. Now that term is misleading in some ways because when we say that people are totally depraved, we do not mean that they are as bad as they, re- they, they act as bad, I should say, as they really are by nature. We all understand that sinful man can admire and even do what is good and virtuous. Our Lord acknowledged this in Luke 6. He said, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Luke writes in Acts 28.2 that the natives there after the shipwreck, those who were unconverted, showed us extraordinary kindness Unbelieving people can be generous and do good and do lots of wonderful things. Nor do we mean that every sinner will indulge in every form of sin. And we certainly don't mean to say that every sinner is as depraved as he possibly can become. As John Gerstner, the theologian that's now with the Lord, used to say, there's always room for deprovement. Total depravity simply means that the corruption inherent in every human being is total in the sense that it permeates every part of us, every part of our nature. It doesn't just affect one part of us, it permeates, it's total in that sense. It taints and ruins every faculty and power, both of our souls and of our bodies. And the result is there is nothing spiritually good in the sinner at all. Scripture speaks unequivocally about this. Let me just give you a few examples. Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 8.21, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. 1 Kings 8.46, there is no man who does not sin. Psalm 51.5, David writes, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. You know what David was saying? He was saying, my sin of adultery and murder, those are not aberrations. I didn't just slip up. I'm normally a good person, but this just happened to me. No, David was saying, I am what I am, and this is simply an expression of it. What I did shows the true nature of my heart. Psalm 143, verse 2, In your sight, no living man is righteous. Ecclesiastes 7.20, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Ecclesiastes 9.3, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. The insanity of sin. Isaiah 53.6, 
All of us like sheep, all of us like sheep, the prophet writes, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Isaiah 64, 6, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. You see, we may do many things that appear good, but our good is actually bad because it is designed to maintain our rebellion against God. And God sees absolutely no spiritual or eternal value in the good that fallen human beings do. Perhaps nowhere is our depravity more graphically portrayed than in Romans chapter 3. Turn there with me for a moment. Romans chapter 3, verse 9, he is now speaking here, Paul, about Jews and Greeks. In other words, everybody. There's no one not included in that expression. Jews and Gentiles is the idea. All of us are under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Our morals are corrupt. Look at verse 11. Our intellects are corrupt. There is none who understands. Our wills are corrupt. There is none who seeks for God. And then in beginning in verse 12 and running all the way down through verse 17, he details how our behavior is corrupt. But look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here is the apex of human sinfulness. There is in each of our hearts and in every person born an inherent lack of submission to and worship of and obedience to the one and true and living God. We are born that way by nature. Many in our culture try to understand the problem with man and come up with all the wrong conclusions. You can read today in various publications that the problems we experience are because of negative environments. And if we can just improve the environment, then we'll solve the problem. Or maybe it's bad nutrition. I've even read that one lately. It's just bad nutrition. You give them better vitamins and better food and people will behave better. Or it's a lack of opportunity. That's the problem, is people don't have the opportunity to be who they need to be and express themselves, and so that creates sin. Or that creates problems, I should say. But God says that none of those are the heart of the problem with man. Here, in a nutshell, is man's problem He's dead. He's dead. Now, obviously, Paul isn't talking about physical death. He's writing to people who were alive at the time he's writing to them. And during the time that he says they were dead, according to verses 2 and 3, they were committing sins and they were living in the world. So he's not talking about physical death. Our family, when I was growing up, got its first TV when I was about 8. That's not because my parents were against TV, nor am I so old as that it was just coming out. But when you have 10 kids, the choice is simple. What shall we buy, food or a television? Fortunately, they waited to buy the television. But we did eventually get one. And I remember occasionally coming across, we weren't allowed to watch them, of course, but I remember occasionally coming across one of the B-horror movies, like The Blob or something ridiculous like that. And I remember one in particular, and I don't remember what it was called, and I didn't watch the whole movie, but I remember catching glimpses of these walking dead. 
They were people who had died and who had then come to some kind of half-life and they walked around terrorizing the living. That is exactly what God says is true about every human being from his perspective. We're physically alive, our hearts beat, our brains function, we have families, we have jobs, we have careers, we go to church, we have religions of various kinds, we sleep, we eat, we play. But without Christ, we are the walking dead. John Calvin put it this way, a spiritual death is nothing else than the alienation of the soul from God. We are all born as dead men, and we live as dead men until we are made partakers of the life of Christ. This wasn't just true of the Ephesians. Paul begins verse 1 by saying, you, talking to the Ephesians. But he quickly includes himself. Notice in verse 3, we. It's everybody. It's everybody. John Stott writes that Paul is not referring to some particularly decadent tribe or degraded segment of society or even of the extremely corrupt paganism of his own day but it is the biblical diagnosis of fallen man in fallen society everywhere but in what sense is every person by nature a walking dead man how does this spiritual death manifest itself well scripture lays out a series of categorical negatives that describe man's spiritual death. They tell us what a spiritually dead man cannot do. Death, in a sense, is defined by that, isn't it? The absence of life, the absence of ability to respond, to communicate, to do anything. Uh, Those of you, again, who've been a part of our church for a while know that as a seminary student, as a poor seminary student, I lived in a mortuary for a while in an apartment there and kept... uh, did some, some of the functions that were necessary. And uh, so I learned a lot about death, and I saw a lot of death. And what I came to realize is the defining qualification of death is that there is an utter inability. And that really is what defines spiritual death as well, an utter inability. There are several New Testament passages that use the Greek word dunamis, It's a word which means to be able, to have the power, to have the capacity. And these passages detail what spiritual death looks like, what the absence of ability looks like when a person is alive physically but dead spiritually. Man, apart from Christ, has no ability to do several things. Let me give you a little list. Number one, he has no ability to act contrary to his nature. No ability to act contrary to his nature. Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Are the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. In other words, you can't change your nature. You can't make moral choices that conflict with who you are by nature. Jesus puts it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 18, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Can't happen. You will produce the fruit that reflects what you are by nature. And so a dead man has no ability to act contrary to his nature. Number two, 
Spiritual death is defined as having no ability to enter God's kingdom. No ability to enter God's kingdom. John chapter 3, that wonderful interchange between our Lord and Nicodemus, the, one of the leading teachers of the Jews. In verse 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Cannot. Does not have the ability, is the word he used. Again, let me remind you that in Greek, as in English, the word can implies ability. He cannot enter the kingdom. Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he's talking about the new birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. A spiritually dead person does not have the ability to act contrary to his nature, and he does not have the ability to enter God's kingdom. Number three, a spiritually dead person does not have the ability to do anything spiritually good. John 8, our Lord tells the leading religious leaders of his day, men who did many good deeds, who gave great alms, who gave huge portions of their money, who did a lot of wonderful things. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Everything you're doing has more to do with the devil than it does to do with God. That's what Jesus told them. In John 15, Jesus, talking to his disciples, says to his disciples there at the Last Supper, he says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. He was talking about nothing spiritually good, nothing pleasing to God, nothing that will be beneficial in eternity. That was true of the disciples, and it's true of unbelievers as well, and they are without Christ, and so they don't have that capacity to do anything spiritually good. Number four, Spiritual death is marked by the lack of ability to believe or understand the truth. To believe or even to understand the truth of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, very familiar verse to all of us. Verse 14 says, a natural man, that is an unregenerate man, a man who hasn't been delivered by God, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they're foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them. He does not have the ability to understand them. And therefore, he doesn't accept them because to him, they're just foolishness. Spiritual death also means that we do not have the ability to obey God. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 6. Let's go back to verse 5 where Paul begins this line of argument. He says, for those who are according to the flesh, he's talking about unbelievers here, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. He's talking about believers and unbelievers. And he says in verse 5, for those who are according to the flesh... Uh, let me go, I'm sorry, verse 6. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. 
So he's drawing these two parallel lines. You have the, the one who lives in the flesh, he's dead. And the one who lives in the spirit has life and peace. Verse 7, because the mindset on the flesh, so we're talking about the unbeliever now, is hostile toward God. It's God's enemy. For, here's why. You know, may not think of yourself as an enemy. We probably didn't. I didn't think of myself as God's enemy before I was saved as a senior in high school. But I was, and here's why. Because my mind, verse 7, does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. An unbelieving person who is dead cannot obey God. He is not even able to submit himself to the law of God. Stay right here in Romans 8, and the next lesson we learn about man's lack of ability in spiritual death is he cannot please God. He cannot please God. Look at verse 8. And those who are in the flesh, here's the coup de grace, cannot, do not have the ability to please God doesn't exist. They can't. There's one final lack that spiritual death brings. Not only is there no ability to act contrary to our nature, no ability to enter God's kingdom, no ability to do anything spiritually good, no ability to believe or even understand the truth, no ability to obey God, no ability to please God. But finally, there is no ability even to come to Christ for salvation apart from divine intervention. Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 44. This is a remarkable verse about human depravity, about spiritual deadness, because Jesus says this, No one, verse 44, no one, that's a categorical negative. Everybody's included in that. No one can come. No one can, there's our word again, is able to, has the ability, has the power. No one has the power or ability to come to me. That's a familiar expression our Lord used of coming to him in faith and repentance, of accepting him as Lord and Savior, of salvation, of entering into salvation. So no one, without exception, can, has the ability or power to come to me, that is for salvation, unless, here's the one exception, unless the Father who sent me draws him. The meaning of this verse is crystal clear. No human being by nature has the ability or power to approach Jesus for salvation unless the Father intervenes and compels him to come. Now, those cannots describe what it means to be dead to God. We cannot act contrary to our nature. We cannot enter God's kingdom. We cannot embrace the truth. We cannot obey God. We cannot please God. We cannot come to Christ for salvation. Now you tell me, what does the reality of spiritual death like that require? It requires that God intervene and he bring life where there is death. 
It demands that salvation be a sovereign declaration of God. It demands, as theologians would say, that salvation be monergistic. Mono meaning one, erg meaning energy or power, one working, that is God working, versus synergistic, that is working together. The sinner and God working together. Absolutely not. The sinner is dead. Salvation must be entirely a work of God from beginning to end. If you're a Christian here this morning, it is imperative that you come to grips with this life-changing truth. You were dead in all the ways we've described. And God, because of his mercy and because of his love that he set upon you, brought you to life. That's why you have any relationship to God today. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that was part two of This Is Your Life. Tom will have part three for us next time, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Thank you.